everyone and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing all right. Excited to watch tonight's movie with you. I am also excited for tonight's movie. Do you want to tell the audience why? (laughs) Because teens? Teens! I don't really know where your excitement for teens came from i don't know either it just sort of like started at some point in the past and has been like like picking up steam as we get closer and closer to the era of teens yeah i think it's because everyone Excuse me. Every adult Mm -hmm. seems to both be in fear and awe of teens. (laughs) Awe that uh, they can do whatever they want. I kind of see the awe in terms of like teenage fashion choices and just like having the confidence to just kind of push some boundaries. And then the fear is like, oh, God, what are the teens up to now? (laughs) (laughs) it's just been interesting because like we're here now we have arrived it is the era of teens we are here it is time because we are watching tonight i was a teenage werewolf from 1957 directed by gene fowler jr and starring michael landon so Last week, at the end of last week's episode, I teased this movie as, like, changing the course of cinematic history. (laughs) I may have been... Clickbaiting? A little bit. (laughs) I may have been exaggerating for effect a little bit. But it's still important to recognize that there was a time in history when people didn't give a fuck about teens. Mm -hmm. When teenagers weren't really a thing in the way we think of them today as like a cultural force when media was not designed solely for teens when there wasn't this sort of separation of like kids movies teen movies adult movies which has sort of progressed to like Sometimes today it feels like there are only teen movies. Tell that to A24, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) This film was produced by American International Pictures. And one of the co-founders of AIP was Samuel Arkoff. And he believed, as a producer of films, in a few truisms. He believed that younger kids will always watch something that older kids like, but older kids will never watch something that younger kids like. I would agree with that truism. He also believed that girls will watch anything that boys like, but boys will not watch something that girls like. I disagree with that. Mm. 
but you can kind of see where he's coming from. Yeah. So because of that, Arkoff believed that if you wanted the maximum number of people to come see your movie, you make movies for 19 year old boys. And honestly, I think we are still living in a entertainment world that believes that. But there was a time when that was not the case, uh, when no one cared about teenagers. So to understand why a movie called I Was a Teenage Werewolf would even be made, we have to understand the rise of the American teen. And Sarah, I, I understand that you uh, are here to tell us about that today. Yes, the rise of the teen. Before I can get to where we are in, you know, 1957, I have to wind the clock back to pre-industrial society. <laughs> okay, <we're, laughs> I have to wind the clock back to before there were clocks. Listen, I'm an academic. <laughs> in this pre-industrial society, you were a kid and then you were an adult. And that shift tended to be like you've hit puberty or you've gotten married or, you know, you're no longer living under your parents' houses. You are now living with your partner. And in this society, you know, kids might have gone to school, um, which would have been like a single room house where kids of all ages were there to learn from a single teacher but work at home and specifically on the farm would come first yeah there's a reason why summer vacation is a thing and it has nothing to do with delightful childhood memories of like amusement parks and going to the pool and everything to do with like the farm work happens from spring to fall yes and only ramps up as you know, it gets to fall. With the broad shift to industrial society mm. um, and the move towards cities, kids also went to work. It was no longer like, okay, I'm off to school. It's like, okay, I'm off to the mines. Mm -hmm. But as the, what I'll call the labor movement, um, pushed for an end to child labor in like the early 1900s, it became like, okay, then what do kids do? If they aren't working, what are they doing? Mm -hmm. So compulsory education yeah. became a thing. Uh, longer time at school with more kids going to school. You have more schools, but also delineation of grades. Therefore, you know, everyone in your class is around the same age. You're no longer stuck with a six-year-old when you're a 16-year-old. Mm. And I'll admit that like what I'll call like extended education. So like going on to, you know, uh, secondary school, university, college, all of that was still around in like a pre-industrial society, but it was mainly for like the middle and upper classes. Now it was like every kid yeah, it is wasn't, going to school. It wasn't compulsory. Yeah. Yeah. So because of that, um, you know, you're, you're, creating in jokes with people among your peers like the same age group as you and you get kind of loosely your own cultural group right yeah 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 because it's not about you're here with everyone you know under 18 in your village it's 
you're here with everyone who has the same birth year as you in your city. Yeah. Yeah. As we enter the 1940s with World War II causing further upset to like the domestic structure and everything, we had social fears of teen delinquents. Yeah, and you juvenile had juvenile delinquency. Yeah, you had like dads away at the war, moms working at the factory, so where the fuck are, you know, Bobby and Jilly, you know, during the day kind of thing. Yeah. So there's more unsupervised time. And the fears of juvenile delinquency are more than just like, oh no, Billy's home past nine o'clock. For example, um, in Los Angeles, 1943, we have the Zoot Suit Riots uh, with a large youth population being involved in these riots. Uh, And this is also a good time to bring up that by and large, as I'm talking about the youth culture and juvenile delinquency, these are fears of like, oh no, my white kid is getting into trouble. Um, a lot of the research and literature that's written about this focuses on white middle-class families. Right. With these fears of juvenile delinquency, we see that reflected in culture. So kind of the example I wanted to bring out here was Val Luton's Youth Runs Wild. Uh, it came out in 1944. Not a good movie. No. <laughs> we, we watched it just for fun um, outside of the podcast. But I think it kind of speaks to the fact that, like, people weren't really sure how to solve this problem um, beyond, like, I guess clubs, maybe. Because the way that they solve the juvenile delinquency in the town in Youth Runs Wild is by building a playground. Mm-hmm. Another really key movie that really kicks off this like juvenile delinquency subgenre in film is Men of Boys Town from 1941. Okay. Uh, some other films we have are Where Are Your Children in 1943 and Delinquent Daughters in 1944. Showing you that juvenile delinquency is a, an equal opportunity. <laughs> well, the fears are, are for different things because delinquent daughters get pregnant, get pregnant because mm. we don't have the pill yet. Mm-hmm. So that's like in the 40s. Post World War Two, teens, there's still fears of like juvenile delinquency, but now teens are getting to be a beneficiary of the 1950s economic boom. So whether that's through their parents making all that dough or teens working and having money, but because the parents are doing well financially, the teens can keep that money. It's no longer like, oh, I'm working at the mines to support the family. I'm working at the mines, well, I'm working at the burger shop in order to have money for my cool car. Right, 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 right. Like you're not, it's not like you don't rely on that money to live. It's just extra money. Exactly. So with extra cash comes economic power as well as uh, time for leisure and entertainment. Um, because while teens are, you know, going to school, once school ends, what are they up to? Right. They're not going to work on the farm like they used to. Exactly. So in June 1954, Life magazine called this generation that has these teens the luckiest generation. <laughs> That's the generation in between the greatest generation and the baby boomers. Exactly. Huh. Um, And this is when the 
market, I guess you could say, began specifically targeting teens with ads because they want that sweet, sweet extra dollars. Right. And this is where we see the rise of the teen movie. Ironically, these movies are like building off themes that we saw in juvenile delinquency movies. Yeah. Only instead of it being from like the parents point of view of like, oh, no, where's Billy? It's uh, a teen point of view of like, what are they doing? What's important to the teen and making a movie around that. Right. Like the teens are still delinquents, but now we're like rooting for them instead of like treating them like with fear. Exactly. Hmm. There's still a bit of like sensationalism of like the delinquents that you do see, but it's also like, oh no, Sally's getting in with the John Travolta's character from Greece. Her name's Sandy, Sarah, not Sally. That's, I was trying to make a reference. With extra cash and extra economic freedom, uh, it also led to the trend of uh, an increase in freedom in mobility with the rise of automobiles. Right. You can travel. You don't have to stay at home where your parents are supervising you. You can hop in a car, go someplace completely unsupervised, um, go to where all the other teens are hanging out and continue like hanging out with them outside of class. Mm. Um, there's also that big boom of drive-in movie theaters. Yeah, and like drive-through fast food and the malt shop and all of this stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Ben, I'm going to ask you. Mm. I want you to think of the teen movie Mm -hmm. with delinquents and cars from the 1950s. What movie comes to mind? Uh, Rebel Without a Cause? Bingo. Yeah. So that's in 1955. Okay. Other really notable movies with like... These themes uh, include Blackboard Jungle Mm -hmm. from that same year. Um, The earliest one I could find is So Young, So Bad from 1950. Okay. Hot Rod Girl from 1956. Uh Uh-huh. And of course, uh, rock and roll is a big thing right now. Yes. So, uh, and the teens are super into it. So we have Rock Around the Clock Mm -hmm. from 1956. Rock All Night 1957, mm-hmm. and of course, Jailhouse Rock, 1957. Yes. So a big boom on the silver screen to feature teens, teen culture, the things that are important to teens, that sort of thing. Yeah. As far as teens in horror thus far, um, the two biggest examples that came to my mind were 1942's The Mummy's Tomb, where we have some teens making out in a car, and Mm -hmm. then Karis shambles along. Mm -hmm. And 1955's Revenge of the Creature, which features some teens helping the cops find the creature Hmm. at the climax of the film. But otherwise, you know, teens, if they've been in a movie, it's been like in the background, no one like really having a big role to play in the plot, nothing like that. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, you talk about the rise of, like, the drive-in theater, right? And, like, the big moral panic about the drive-in theater was that, like, you know... People going to fuck in there. I was going to say make out. I was going to say people (laughs) were making out in their cars, but okay. Uh, (laughs) So, but yes, yes. The idea that, like, you know, 
you could have a boy and a girl in a car un- totally unsupervised alone private like you know at some movie to bring this back to Samuel Arkoff and American International Pictures they began focusing on teens um, because AIP was the first filmmaking company to utilize focus groups and like market research, basically in, in the way that we would recognize it today. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously it's not like MGM in the thirties was just like throwing a dart at a wall and hoping that they hit something. Uh, I mean, they kind of were, but like, (laughs) you know, AIP was doing what we would consider to be like modern market research and a poll of theater owners that they did showed that around this time adults were staying at home to watch TV before television in the 1940s and earlier going to the movies was an everybody thing, you know, and like everybody went to the movies all the time. Most families went to the movies at least once a week a lot of people went like a couple times a week it was cheap enough that you could do that for one thing and you know what else were you gonna do read a book listen to the radio i think not um what are you some kind of nerd nerd. uh (laughs) so yeah so like people went to the movies all the time the rise of tv saw a decline in theater attendance And what the demographics showed was like kids didn't go to movies like 10 year olds weren't hopping in a car and driving downtown to spend, you know, 25 cents on a movie ticket. They didn't have that ability. Adults weren't doing it because they could just sit at home and watch TV. So why bother? But teens were. Because it's a place where they can go get some privacy. Exactly. Away from adults. And they have that disposable cash and that mobility that you described. So because of that, AIP began to focus on teens. They began running focus groups, uh, specifically made up of American teenagers who were asked what they would like to see in movies, and using their responses would determine what AIP's product was. Like, what kind of actors do they want? What kind of stories? What kind of topics? Um, You know, because the AIP method of doing things was you came up with a title and then you came up with a poster and then you hired a writer to write to that title and poster, right? It's a tried and true method. Right. So movies like horror and sci-fi were successful with teens, which is why we've been seeing a lot of them. Like we're only in July of 1957 and we've been in 1957 for a while now. Yeah. So it's sort of surprising that it took them this long to figure out teens like horror and sci-fi. What if teens were the main characters in horror and sci-fi? Because like we've been seeing like 60 year old dudes named like Professor Smithson, like solving (laughs) sci-fi mysteries in small towns for like 20 years now. But finally, as teens increasingly became the focus for AIP and their competitors, this led to the decision to create a AIP double feature solely based around teens with teen lead characters marketed only to teens. AIP producer Herman Cohen wanted to create stories that tapped into the teen distrust of adults. 
rather than the adult fear of teens that informed the juvenile delinquent genre, as you described. Yeah. Cohen said, quote, I have always felt that most teenagers think of adults as the culprits in their lives, unquote. Culprits? Yeah. Like that, you know, adults, whether they're parents or teachers or police or other authority figures are the ones standing in their way and making their lives worse. Sure. They are the antagonist. Cohen was born in Detroit in 1925. He began his career as an usher at the Dexter Theater at age 12. By age 18, he was the manager. After serving with the Marines in World War II, he became the Detroit area sales manager for Columbia Pictures. He moved to Hollywood and became a part of the marketing department at Columbia and then uh, struck out on his own to produce films, uh, initially for real art pictures, where he produced movies like Bride of the Gorilla and Bella Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla and Kid Monk Baroni, which was itself a juvenile delinquent movie about like a young delinquent teen who becomes like a star boxer, uh, which was also the first film to star Leonard Nimoy. Oh. He's the delinquent teen boxer. Does he fight a gorilla? No, he is the gorilla. Oh, <laughs> From real art pictures, Cohen made his way to producing films for allied artists and then United Artists, but his greatest financial successes would be at AIP, starting with I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Now, that sort of sensationalist title comes from the same tradition of naming movies after um, the confessional genre of magazine article. I mean, like we saw that with I Walked with a Zombie. Correct. Um, But significantly... I Was a Teenage Werewolf is the first movie with the word teenage in the title. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess teenager or teenage had been like used here and there th- since like um, the early 1900s, late 1800s. But the idea of like teen nature uh, really got cemented in um, the New York Times 1945 article, A Teenage Bill of Rights. Interesting. I have never heard of that article. Yeah, it includes things like having independence <laughs> from my parents and teachers. That's what an adult is. That's what an adult is. It reminds me of uh, Ariel being like, Dad, I'm 16 years old. I can be independent and go to the surface. And it's like, you're fucking 16. I do think that, like, thinking that you're an adult but you're not is a key, like, part of the definition of the teenage experience. Yeah. Yeah. Other rights include the right to make mistakes and to find out for myself. Uh Uh-huh. The right to have fun and companions. Um, and the right to question ideas, which I, you know, Who okay, this? the New York Times, Ben, right? But, like, um, but the idea of like the right to question ideas, I can understand mm. that when like you're feeling like every person of authority is like, no, you need to think this way, right? And you're wanting to kind of rebel against that. So I understand why that's in there, right? So Cohen wrote the script for this movie with his longtime collaborator. Abin Candle. Candle was born in Romania in 1895, immigrating to the United States and receiving his education as a lawyer at New York University. He served in World War I and was a professional boxer as a young man. 
He began writing novels in the 1920s, transitioning to plays in the 30s. Then when those plays began to be adapted to film, Candle found his way into screenwriting in the mid-1930s. By the 1950s, he was writing for television while continuing to write novels and plays. His first collaboration with Herman Cohen was the earlier-mentioned boxing movie Kid Monk Baroni, starring Leonard Nimoy, uh, which is ironic because his son, Stephen Candle, wrote the second pilot of the original Star Trek series starring Leonard Nimoy. The director for I Was a Teenage Werewolf was Gene Fowler Jr., who was the eldest son of journalist, author, and playwright Gene Fowler. He was born in 1917 in Denver, Colorado, and got his start in Hollywood as an editor, but also worked as a director as well. This would be his first feature film as a director after a few years of directing television. This was also the first starring role in a feature film for the lead actor in this movie, Michael Landon. Born Eugene Maurice Orowitz in 1936 in Forest Hills, Queens, New York City, Eugene was the son of a Jewish father and a Catholic mother. He got into University of Southern California on an athletic scholarship, having set records in the javelin throw as a high schooler. But he tore his shoulder ligaments and lost the ability to compete and therefore lost his scholarship and therefore had to drop out of university. He ended up as a gas station attendant across the street from the Warner Brothers studio lot. By chance, he was noticed by an agent who convinced him to become an actor and to change his name. 21-year-old Landon's starring role in this movie would skyrocket him to stardom, leading to his casting in 1959 on the television series Bonanza, which ran for 14 seasons and was the number one show on television for many of those years. Landon's character was the most popular on the show, which led to Landon, over the course of the series' run, being able to use that as leverage to get permission to write scripts, direct episodes, and even get a producer credit. After Bonanza was canceled... Landon would go on to play the dad on the hit series Little House on the Prairie. That show ran for nine seasons, with Landon starring in eight of them and serving as a writer, producer, and director on all of them. Yeah, that's where I'm most familiar with him. He went on after Little House on the Prairie to create, produce, and star in the series Highway to Heaven, uh, where he plays like an angel who's trying to like help people out with stuff so he can like get back to heaven or something along those lines. Um, and he was on that show for five years. He passed away of pancreatic cancer in 1991 at age 54. Oh, that's young. Yeah. The film's lead actress is Yvonne Lime, who was born in 1935 in Glendale, California. She graduated from high school in 1953 and was scouted by an agent after acting at the Pasadena Playhouse. She then landed a recurring role on the sitcom Father Knows Best. I Was a Teenage Werewolf was her first starring role in a film. After marrying a TV producer in 1969, she shifted her focus away from acting to philanthropy. She is still alive today at age 86. Character actor Whit Bissell appears in this film as a mad scientist. We've seen him before in Creature from the Black Lagoon and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Fans of 1960s TV will recognize him from his roles on The Time Tunnel and Star Trek. 
Barney Phillips, who plays a police detective in this movie, would be familiar to audiences from his similar role as a police detective on TV's Dragnet, which was still on the air at this time. Sicilian-American actor Armando Catalano, better known to audiences by his stage name Guy Williams, appears in a very minor role in this movie, but would rise to major fame soon afterwards when in October of 1957 he began appearing in the title role of Walt Disney's Zorro television series, becoming sort of the definitive Zorro for a whole generation of television viewers. Williams played Zorro for four years, and then later went on to also play the dad on the original Lost in Space TV show from 1965 to 1968. There's a minor character in this movie, a teen gymnast at the school, who is played by Dawn Richards. She was 22 years old, and she was also the May 1957 Playmate of the Month. Uh, So that, that issue came out a couple months before this movie came out. Um, was that planned? No, no, okay. no, Just no, curious. no. Uh, Playboy was fairly new in 1957 <laughs> um, and controversial. So I Was a Teenage Werewolf was shot in seven days Ooh. for $82,000. All right. Not a lot of money. It was released on July 19th, 1957 on a double bill with Invasion of the Saucer Men a sci-fi comedy with alien designs by Paul Blaisdell. The double feature's tagline was, We dare you to see the most amazing motion pictures of our time. (laughs) So I Was a Teenage Werewolf became the first horror film to have a cast made up primarily of teenagers, which would go on to become the primary demographic of horror characters for the next 50 years. Question. Yes. Were union rules around teen and children actors defined at this point? I don't know. Uh, I don't really know the history of, like, those union rules. I know that, like, by 1957, we have kind of thoroughly moved away from the, like, studio system where, like, the studio owns child actors basically but i don't really know what the overall rules would have been at this time uh like because a lot of those union rules became more and more powerful as the studios gained less and less power right um that being said like today most of the teens in this movie are actors who are actually not teens right both michael landon and yvonne lime were like 21 22 when they made this movie. Yeah. So invasion of the saucer men, the other movie on the double bill introduced the trope of the teens knowing that there's a threat, but the adults not believing them. We've kind of already seen that trope with the invasion from Mars or whatever the fuck. But that was like a tiny child. Yeah. And to be honest, the only adults who didn't believe him were the ones who had already been taken over by aliens. When he phoned the Pentagon, they were like, yeah, of course, Billy, we'll send in troops on your order. Um, now, gee, thanks, General Patton. Right, exactly. Now, (laughs) Patton was long dead by that point, but that's okay. Um, now, Invasion of the Saucer Men originally was supposed to be a serious sci fi movie, but the cast and crew found it so hilarious as like a concept that, like, midway through shooting, they just gave up and turned it into a total comedy, which is one of the reasons why we won't be watching it for this show unless we get it as like a horror adjacent episode. I Was a Teenage Werewolf received mixed reviews from critics, 
there was criticism of like it being about teenagers. Sure. Um, there was sort of the general criticism that you get for it just like being a horror movie for the ridiculous premise for the title, but the double feature grossed $2 million at the U S box office. So if we presume that the Saucerman one cost 80,000 as yeah, well about to the make, same. it made, uh, about double what it cost to make these two movies. No, double. No, 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 no. 80,000 plus 80,000 is 160,000. But which isn't would, that a mil? No, a million. No. <laughs> That's <laughs> like a tenth of a million. I'm not a, a yeah. mathematician. No, this made like 12 times. The double feature made 12 times its budget back. Like this made like 24 times its budget back. Yeah. Essentially. Um, yeah, this was the most successful release ever by AIP up to this point. So while kind of calling back to you, uh, acknowledging a bit of a clickbaity mm. teaser in the la- end of the last episode, I think we can agree that this is a film that is indicative of this huge shift towards teens. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, some of those earlier teen films that you mentioned, like like Rebel Without a Cause was popular with teens, but it wasn't marketed solely to teens. No. Blackboard Jungle addresses teen issues, but the protagonist is still an adult who's trying to control them. You know, teens loved Marlon Brando in The Wild Ones, but his character isn't technically a teen in that movie, right? This is like about teens for teens. We just care about teens. And both movies on the double feature are teen focused. And this movie's financial success i mean as i said like after this teens and horror are like synonymous right like name a horror movie from like the 70s and 80s that like isn't about teens alien okay (laughs) but i'm sorry but you are making your point yes absolutely aip definitely knew they had a good thing uh they would follow this double feature four months later with a double bill of I was a teenage Frankenstein and blood for Dracula, uh, which are both variants on this movie. Blood for Dracula is about a teenage girl who becomes a vampire. Um, And then the next year they would follow it up with the double feature of how to make a monster and teenage caveman and how to make a monster is a fictional story about the guy who did the makeup for I Was a Teenage Werewolf and I Was a Teenage Frankenstein using that makeup on some teens so that they can commit crimes for him against the movie studio that he wants revenge on (laughs) or something like that. Someone was reading too many Batman comics. Mm. The success of these movies made I Was a Teenage blank. Uh, like a common joke construction for parody movie titles for years. Like stand-up comics made this joke. Late night talk shows made this joke. Sitcoms made this joke. You know, like if you're watching like a random episode of like, I leave it to Beaver and they go to a movie theater, it's probably going to be like, I was a teenage dinosaur or something like that. Uh, I guess that means you could call it like a meme, like a late fifties meme. Yeah. Um, And the basic concept of this movie would inspire the 1985 film Teen Wolf starring Michael J. Fox, who kind of got like a very similar career boost out of that movie that Michael Landon got from this one. 
Uh, Teen Wolf had an animated spinoff series and a sequel. Then, of course, there's the Canadian television series Big Wolf on Campus that aired yeah. in 1999 to 2002. So fucking dope. I loved that show. <laughs> oh, my God. And when no one remembers it and everyone's like, oh, my God, like current day Teen Wolf or whatever the fuck it's called. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but is it Big Wolf on Campus? I don't think so. Yeah. People forget that Canada did Big Wolf on Campus uh, like 12 years before MTV did their series Teen Wolf which ran from 2011 to 2017. Uh, so this movie has a legacy, Yeah, is what I'm getting at. Now, despite this popularity, despite this legacy, despite this key position as a fulcrum in the shift of cinema, uh, as the launching pad for the career of Michael Landon, uh, I Was a Teenage Werewolf is currently unavailable to stream, to watch on DVD or to watch on Blu-ray. Uh, this is due to confusion about its copyright status. Uh, it is unknown whether it is public domain or whether it is still owned by some successor of the rights. Nobody quite knows where those rights would be lying if it's owned by a successor to the rights, but the easiest chain of ownership to follow is that AIP was bought out by Filmways in the 1970s, which was bought out by Orion Pictures in the 1980s, which was bought out by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer in the 1990s, which was bought out by Amazon a couple weeks ago. Anyways, Great. the last time I was a teenage werewolf had a home video release was on VHS. And uh, we have it in that form on our YouTube playlist. Folks, if you would like to watch along, head over to our YouTube playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss I Was a Teenage Werewolf from 1957, directed by Gene Fowler Jr. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching I Was a Teenage Werewolf, directed by Gene Fowler Jr. Sarah, what did you think? Very interesting movie. It had some mm. very interesting like camera movements, very lively camera, mm. um, better than I thought it was going to be. Mm. Interesting. You? I enjoyed this. I was uh, happily enjoying it. Um, you know, thinking to myself like, I can see how this made $2 million. Um, I was a little let down by the ending, but we can talk about that later. Yeah. Personally, I wasn't let down by the ending. Uh, it it was like, yeah, that's what I expected. Sure. <laughs> All right. So to give the plot synopsis, Tony is a teenager and he's having a hard time. Mm. He loses his temper easily, and he gets into a ton of fights around town. Uh, and he's gotten the attention of a detective, Donovan. Uh, this is now the third fight that Donovan has pulled Tony out of. 
And he's like, hey, this is your final warning since you're a white kid. <laughs> but you, you do seem to be having some troubles with your temper and like <laughs> adjusting to normal society. Mm. It's kind of the way he puts it. Um, so Donovan recommends Tony goes to see the town psychologist, Dr. Alfred Brandon, who is a hypnotherapist. Tony is stubborn and refuses to go, but with the urging of his girlfriend Arlene and getting into yet another scrape, uh, he reluctantly agrees. Now, as I said, Dr. Brandon is a hypnotherapist. Uh, before they begin, he gives Tony a full physical, and then uh, he's like, cool, you just hang out here and let me just go into my lab in this other room to get uh, the drugs that I need for hypnotherapy. And he goes in there and his assistant, Hugo, is there and Dr. Brendan's like, Hugo, you'll never guess who just walked in the perfect specimen to test my regression theories on. And Hugo's like, yeah, but it's a person. And Dr. Brendan's like, yeah, but you don't cry over guinea pigs. (sighs) So his theory is basically people today are too aggressive we're on the verge of killing ourselves with nuclear war or whatever and he wants to basically wipe the slate clean start over and develop a serum i guess to regress people back to their primitive states um so we can start over hugo's like yeah but you know what will happen and brandon's like i don't care I'm doing it anyways. Science. Um, Science demands it. So we have a mix of uh, Bridie Murphy hypnotherapy and the pseudoscientific regression theories that we've seen in some past movies. So Tony, you know, it's been a few weeks. He's not really sure how the therapy is going, um, but he takes Arlene to the, the local hangout place they call it the haunted house it doesn't matter um but he he's not feeling it so he's like no arlene let's, let's go home some people like rib him a bit about leaving he's like Meh. losing my temper a little bit but not getting into a fight as they leave uh a friend of theirs frank um who doesn't have a car uh is like yeah i don't need to ride home i'm going to walk through these dark spooky woods It'll be fine. <laughs> and the camera follows Frank as he makes his way home. And he is attacked by some kind of unseen creature, stalked through the woods and then viciously attacked. So viciously that the cops are like, yeah, I don't think it was like a knife or a shiv. I think it was fangs through the neck. Uh, now, the cops are trying to keep this low profile. Like, this is clearly some kind of like wild animal or something but there's no wild animals of this sort of like predatory nature in our woods uh so check if there's carnivals in town if there's like farm animals going missing or something like that um but keep these pictures private now at the police station there is a janitor whose name is peppy and he has an accent (laughs) and he is like hey beat cop let me see those photos maybe i can help because everyone's at a loss and he takes one look at the photos and he's like ah werewolf 
back in the old country in the Carpathian Mountains, we knew of the werewolf, and that's what this is. And the beat cop is like, Ah, oh, Peppy, you and your foreign ways. Now, Tony um, has regular appointments with Dr. Brandon, so he goes there, and he's like, Doc, I, uh, I'm having some weird dreams and shit, and I, I think they might be memories and not dreams, and I need to talk to you about this. And Dr. Brandon, who knows full well what's happening to his patient, is like, don't worry about it, Tony. You'll tell me all in hypnotherapy. Just lay down on this couch and let me continue to pump you full of drugs, despite not having your consent to do any of this nonsense. Besides, you're making such great progress. I've even told your principal, but good progress you've been making. To demonstrate that good progress, Tony does have a meeting with the principal where she's like, yeah, you're making great progress. Good job. You're going to make the honor roll if you keep this up. As Tony is leaving that appointment with the principal, he passes by the gym where a Playboy bunny model gymnast is practicing. Um, and the movie wants you to know she's flexible. Hmm. Now, Tony decides to just stand and watch like a real creep. And then there's like a bell that goes off. The like, hey, school's out for summer kind of bell. The period's ending bell. And that like sets him off. It like hurts his ears. He gets angry. And no one's going to like him when he's angry because he then turns on camera into a werewolf. He goes and attacks the gymnast, um, kills her, and then because the gymnast was screaming so wildly and it's a school day, uh, everyone rushes in, sees what's going on, sees that there's like this werewolf creature. Um, and Tony Werewolf books it out of the gym, hops a fence, is gone into the woods. But he was recognized because of his clothing, like the principal literally just saw him. Um, and then also it's not like a letterman jacket, but it's like... Tony wears that jacket. I know it's Tony. So he's been recognized by the principal and a few of the students. So we get a manhunt, torch-carrying villagers going through the woods trying to find Tony Werewolf. We get some scenes of like the, the press pressuring the cops for answers, etc. And some interesting moments of like Tony stalking the police posse. He also fights and kills a dog. So add I was a teenage werewolf to the list of does the dog die? Yes. Mm. Tony awakens the next morning as himself, but he seems to clearly understand like why he's here, uh, that he was hiding from the cops, etc. And so he uh, sneaks around town and manages to make it to Dr. Brandon. And he's like, Doc, like, fuck. And Dr. Brandon's like, don't worry, we'll sort this all out through the hypnotherapy. Hey, Hugo, bring out the video camera. I need to get this documented so no one will laugh at me when I can prove that my regression theory is correct. It is a film camera. I do have to be pedantic about these things. Yeah, that is fine. Um, so Tony gets transformed on camera uh, and then he attacks and kills Hugo and then Dr. Brandon. Um, as what did a, you expect? Yeah, I don't know what Dr. Brandon was... I didn't think the werewolf would eat my face off, says the person <laughs> who voted for the face-eating werewolf party. 
Um, now, Detective Donovan had already been a little suspicious about Dr. Brandon, um, and they're on the trail of Tony because he's been spotted through town. So Detective Donovan and the beat cop make it to the office just in time for Tony to finish ripping the doctor to shreds. So Donovan and the beat cop end up having to shoot werewolf Tony uh, to protect themselves in self-defense. And Tony dies. And as he dies, he is back to human Tony. And Detective Donovan has enough screen time left to say, like, well, this is real sad and tragic, but it goes to show that there's certain things that man should not dabble in. Mm-hmm. The end. So, like, it, it's same kind of beats that you would expect from a werewolf movie, especially yes. when there's a mad scientist involved. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, I think this movie's pretty good. Um, considering it's his first feature film, we see a lot of interesting and creative shots and editing from director Gene Fowler. Uh, Junior. Yes. Not to be confused with his father. Yes. We get some like werewolf POV shots in the woods. Yeah, um, the attack sequence for Frank was... Is really cool. Yeah, I mean, it starts off very like, yeah, you only have like $84,000 in the bank here, but like, um, because he's walking through the woods, whistling, everything's fine, and then he'll stop every now and then, and then like the needle drop will happen for like someone's following you in the woods kind of slowly. Yeah. It'll end. And so he'll start back up again. And it, it, it was like reminiscent of, um, I think it was called night monster where it was mm. like the ribbits. Yeah. We're frogs. very like start stop. Yeah. But like, you know, it kind of brings itself back from that. It's clear that like, again, this is a movie you can watch and be like, aha, I see you've seen cat people. But, um, yeah, the, the ending of that scene is just like Frank screaming and the camera, like pushing in on his face until like his face is the only thing on frame and then fading out while he screams, which is like pretty good. Yeah. And like, I'm not going to say like, well, we've never had a man be targeted in this manner, but it was just interesting that this was like the first uh, kill sure of the movie and it wasn't afraid to be so um horrific yeah uh i was the only word coming to mind was graphic but it's not graphic no. we don't even see the creature but it's clear like this is going to scare you yeah like, this is what we were wanting to do yes it's clear the movie's trying to scare you which is cool to see um Similarly, this is Michael Landon's first film, and he gives a really good performance as Tony. Yeah, he really does. Um, there are moments as you're easing into the film where it feels like he, he's just having his temper be like a flick of a switch. Yeah. Where one moment he's yelling and then the next he's like, oh, I'm sorry, Arlene. I'm just a little testy today. But no, he really brings it. And then there's a moment when... It's when he goes to the doctor for the final time. He is so frantic and mm. scared. He really does a really good performance. Yeah. And, you know, that kind of like flip of a switch anger, like as someone who was a teenage boy with anger problems at one point in his life, like I can attest that that kind of happens. Mm. And then like immediately you feel guilty. You immediately realize you've done something stupid and you feel guilty. Um, did you ever go to a hypnotherapist who then injected you with things like are you confessing to being a teenage werewolf no was not a teenage werewolf okay okay cool i have to ask these things (laughs) (laughs) 
The werewolf makeup here is very good. Um, it's clearly inspired by Jack Pierce's Wolfman, but honestly, I think I might like it better. Well, you always found Jack Pierce's werewolf to be a bit more boar. Yeah, it didn't look enough like a wolf to me. And I think this, honestly, to my eyes, looks more convincingly wolf-like. Yeah, the uh, teeth are a little, like, ill-fitting um, because it's clearly like um, a mouthpiece or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, you know, poking out of his mouth a bit. Um, but there are a few moments where he has drool, if not a foamy coming out of his mouth mm-hmm. um they take extra steps to try to amp up what's on screen it looks good for a movie that cost like 80k right yeah. like you know and even like michael landon does a lot of good stuff with his performance as werewolf tony like he he sniffs around and like bears his his teeth by like pulling back his upper lip and like all kinds of like cool stuff like i think he kind of does a better job of being in wolf form than Lon Chaney Jr. did. Like, I I really like his werewolf. Yeah, I think he did a really good job. Like, we spoke to some of the camera work that Mm. was going on, a lot of movement, but there were even moments where, like, there's no real need for you to be doing this, and yet you're doing it, and it's giving this this scene more power. Yeah. So the one that comes to mind is uh, Tony's on the run as werewolf, and we're with the dad, and the dad is with the beat cop, mm. and um, the dad is like, so Tony's mom died like a few years ago, and so it's just been Tony and his dad, and he's showing like a lot of like worry and concern and guilt like should i have remarried like what would having a more stable home been better for him um and then he gets up to get a call and it's it's just his boss and when he comes back and sits down the camera moves in and it's like level with the table and it moves in so that it like in the foreground is a cup of coffee and the cops pouring more coffee and um we're still very centered on the dad's face and it's still just him like questioning like oh man i really hope he's okay and just the emotional toll that this is having on him and tony's dad has three scenes the first one where tony gets home and he's like i lost my temper they want me to see a doctor and tony's dad being like well sometimes you know you have to do what someone else wants in order to just make things easier. And, you know, I have to head off to work, but, you know, try to do your best. And then when Tony is first identified as the werewolf, uh, it's either a reporter or a cop that's with him kind of questioning him, like, mm-hmm. have you seen him? What was he like? That sort of thing. And yeah, then that's, this... that's the reporter giving the, like, what was he like as a kid? And his dad giving literally the answer you always get. Yeah, he was quiet and kept to himself. <laughs> Yeah. Um, And then this third scene where it's like the emotional toll. And this actor doesn't really do much in terms of filmography after this or even before this, but he gives a really good performance. And I think the camera movement and cinematography there, and I guess blocking would be a part of that, really helps highlight that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also thought the dad was really good. I thought like most of the actors in this were pretty good. Um, even the younger ones, they, they get across the characters. There's one teen who looks like he's 35, but otherwise, <laughs> like the rest of them are okay. Um, I, I also noticed that same shot, although what I noticed was like the 
stuff in the foreground with the cop like pouring the cup of coffee because the cop himself isn't actually like on screen we don't see his face we hear his voice off camera and we stay just looking at the dad but we know the cop is there and where his position is in relation to the dad without needing to cut away from the dad because we're seeing the cop like pour a cup of coffee and like sit down and there's this action in the foreground and like having simultaneous action going on in your background your foreground like this is all stuff that like a good director does to maintain visual interest in a shot Mm -hmm. and i saw lots of things like that throughout this movie that made me really surprised that you know this guy is directing a movie for the first time he's done some tv and he's done some like a lot of editing and so i just have to figure like as an editor he's just been like watching and learning as he sees other people's footage right and i think being a director on television has really helped him hone the skills of like knowing what he wants, mm. how to do it quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's just a lot of stuff here that like, I was surprised they shot this in seven days. Yeah. I do wish that the movie cared more about digging into Tony's rage and what the cause of it is. Yeah. It's just kind of like, well, I guess he's a teenager. Yeah. I think the movie could have been a lot stronger if, they had pinned down Tony's psychology. Um, the closest suggestion we get at any point is the death of his mother. But like, otherwise, he's very much in the rebel without a cause mold where there's all these like calm and nurturing adults trying to help him. And he's just like irrationally angry for no reason. And I really dislike this element that pops up in teen juvenile delinquent movies because it makes teens seem like this unknowable other where it's like, oh, they just are bad because they're teens. And it also creates this sensation as if like there's nothing that any of the adults could possibly be doing wrong. Like all the adults in this movie, well, with one very notable exception, are like totally reasonable and like patient with Tony and just want to help him and see good things for him. And he's just like, don't tell me what to do, man. And this only, in my opinion, serves to like bolster the adult viewpoint and negate any real attempt to understand the teen experience. Yeah, it. this movie very clearly is like, we're targeting teens because money, mm. but the people writing it are still like, but we don't really know what teens want or yeah. why they do things. Yeah, the, the writing seems to think that like, what teens are is jerks like that teens are just jerks to adults and they're jerks to each other and they're just kind of unpleasant jerks all the time yeah there's a whole bit that i kind of skipped um Mm. we go to like it's like halloween night and we're at the house that we all hang out at and uh there's jazzy rock and roll um Someone sings a song that sounds like a cross between Cab Calloway and rock and roll Mm -hmm. and not in a good way. Mm. I mean, he sings fine, but it's whatever. Uh, Tons of pranks. Um, Maybe that's because it's like Halloween night, but it was just like prank after prank after prank. Yeah, it was like, why are we doing this? It was as if like it was like, yeah, that's what teens do. They're just like are jerks to each other constantly. And then there's like a whole dance scene. Right. uh, As dude is singing as Cab Calloway. Um this is all we know about teens so let's put it all in i've been looking all over town but so far she ain't been around someday i'll meet her and then i'll say shoot baby baby we're on our way 
Hurry up now and follow me. But don't forget to bring your do-re-me. I do, I do want to point out that, like, white teenagers singing the music of, like, black jazz songs from, like, 20 years earlier, but now just do it with an electric guitar is pretty much what 50s rock and roll <laughs> is. Um, the way that you can tell that this was made by someone who doesn't get rock and roll, because the song was written for this movie, but you can tell that adults are making this movie because at some point someone told this kid, like, oh yeah, when you sing, you have to properly enunciate every syllable, which is something that I was taught when I was taught how to sing as a child, mm-hmm. but like, isn't what rock music sounds like. I am not nothing but a hound dog crying all the time. Like, that's not how that song goes. <laughs> but that's how, like, this kid sings this song. Yeah, it's very funny. But, like, if the movie understood Tony better, the werewolf stuff would also work better. Yeah. Because a problem that I have with this movie that, like, you know, it's not the biggest problem in the world. This is still a good movie. But, like, there isn't really an identifiable trigger for why he turns into a werewolf when like it's not a supernatural werewolf so it's not like the curse of the moon or something because it's about like we're going to regress him to a primitive state there's like a a suggestion that like oh when he has like strong primitive emotions or something like because the whole movie's about his like anger management problems so like yeah. it would make sense to make it like the hulk and tie it in like he turns when he gets angry and it seems like that's the, cl- like, if you squint, that's kind of the closest they get in terms of a, an explanation, but they don't really do anything with no. it. And it's not consistent yeah. from instance to instance. Like the first time he transforms, we have no idea why. It's just because like, it's this time in the movie. It's time. There's someone yeah. walking well, alone in the woods Well, there was like a chick at the party who was a like ribbing him about going home early. Yeah, but he seems fine more or less. And the thing about that first one that is really weird to me as well is like there's no motive for Tony to attack Frank. And in yeah, fact, it's not like Frank is the person who ribbed him. Going after the gymnast, it's like they can't really say what the meaning of the scene is because like, oh, we're regressing him back to man's primitive instincts and hey, here's a sexy babe in front of you like it's clear honestly that the transformation is like horniness based in that moment but they have this bell go off to try and make you go like oh it's because he was annoyed by the sound of the bell and if the bell thing had been more consistent that would have been interesting because it would have been like a pavlov's dog kind of thing but when he transforms the last time with the doc on film the telephone call that comes through doesn't transform him. The doc transforms him by injecting him full of stuff, which isn't how it has worked in the past. The telephone just sets him off to go attack the doc, which he was going to do. So if they had actually nailed down Tony's psychology, I think it would have helped reinforce the werewolf stuff. Yeah, I agree. That being said, it I did appreciate the... I mean, I I think I kind of spoke to this with the emphasis on the emotional effect on the dad. 
but you get the emotional effect on the whole community. Yeah. Like on the principal, on Arlene as the girlfriend. Like everyone is really upset, but also concerned for Tony. Yeah. Everyone's just trying to help him. And it's kind of odd to me because like, as you're saying with, you need a little bit more to his psychology to make this make sense. Like everyone really is concerned and wants the best for Tony. No one's being particularly awful to him. He's, he's just having a bad temper. It's not like he keeps hitting like roadblocks at school. He's actually a really good student. Right. Uh, he's not dealing with like problematic authority figures at school. She honestly just wants to help him and is doing actually a fairly good job of it. She's not being awful. Yeah. The cops in here are really nice guys just trying to do their jobs. Even like the reporter, isn't as skeezy as they could make him. He's still on the skeezy side. Yeah. Um, But then the only person of authority that Tony ends up fully trusting is the doc. And that's the one person in authority who fucks him. Right. Although even there, like Dr. Brandon is lying to him the whole time. So it's not like he's setting off Tony's rebelliousness either, because as far as Tony knows, he's his best friend. Yeah. But if the message of the movie is to like be distrustful of authority, Mm -hmm. it's not here. It's not really there. No. And I mean, Dr. Brandon is the true villain here, but he doesn't make a goddamn lick of sense. Like the rest of it's, it's weird, right? Cause like the rest of this movie feels like a standard you know jd teen melodrama movie like this is one step like this could just be a cheap rebel without a cause like knockoff yeah right except that like a mad scientist from like some other studio set down the hall like accidentally wandered into this movie right like this is a movie that's set in the real world with the exception of dr brandon who is like full-on from a monogram picture with what you're saying about like how all the adults are really trying to help him and stuff and how he's actually a good student in things. It's like this movie's trying to say like, okay, parents, like, you know, this could happen to anyone. It doesn't have to be Billy, like being bad at school or anything like just don't trust doctors. (laughs) Well, I was going to say that it, it comes across as like, you know, a movie that's like trying to reassure an adult audience. Like, you know, is your teen having problems with the police? Like, well, it's not the police's fault. They're doing their best. Yeah. Is your teen having trouble with you? Well, you haven't done anything wrong. You're just doing your best. It's just teens, man. Yeah, it's not the school. They're they're doing their best they can. Like, your kid just has irrational anger because he's a teen. Yeah. Um, but- Did you know uh, that they were doing um, lobotomies on kids these days? You mean like in 1957 these yeah. days? Ah, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. So to, to pick up what I was saying about Dr. Brandon. Yes, sir. Um, so this guy's not a hypnotherapist. I'm surprised if he's even a doctor. Like <laughs> if I was Tony, I'd be looking around that that room for like a degree on the wall and then seeing if it was like drawn in crayon because like doctor. It here, it's in media studies. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the fuck? Dr. Brandon says he's a hypnotherapist. If he's a hypnotherapist, why the fuck does he have a lab full of beakers and shit? Like biochemist and hypnotherapist? Not the same thing. In fact, you might be like, well, but you know, he's he's making the drugs to like help his patients' mental problems. No, 
That's a psychiatrist, which is a different thing from a psychologist, right? Like therapists are not the ones who are giving you the pills. No, they're helping you talk through your issues. Right. So it's like, you know, this movie falls into like a very common movie trap of like, a scientist is all kinds of scientists, which that's fine. But then like Dr. Brandon's plan is to inject Tony with something that is going to facilitate regressing him to a primitive state through hypnosis, which like we've seen enough Bridie Murphy movies now to understand how that's supposed to work. And that's going to turn him into like, you know, presumably like Cro-Magnon or something. And then that's going to save the human race because then we won't blow each other up with nukes. And it's like, wait a minute, doc, you know, I'm pretty sure giving the launch keys to Neanderthals is not going to be the solve that you think it is. Yeah. Like we will still be living in a world that has all these things. It'll just be, we just won't be able to make more. I think is the yeah, idea. It's still a dumb idea. Absolutely. It's, it's ridiculous. It's a, it makes Ben. There's, this movie had $84,000. Sure. <laughs> they but couldn't like, afford a rewrite. But like the rest of the movie's fairly intelligently written. Yeah. Right. And it's like, by this point, we're so far along with these mad scientist movies that people have forgotten that like, what Dr. Frankenstein was trying to do made sense. <laughs> like, it was wild bullshit, but, like, the idea of, like, hey, I can figure out how to bring the dead back to life. Cool. I can see why people would want to do that. This? No. <laughs> also, the movie never really explains why something that's supposed to be regressing him into a primitive state for humanity is turning him into a werewolf. Because he's been a furry all along, Ben. <laughs> and the wildest part is Dr. Brandon doesn't go like, oh, no, this isn't what I expected at all. He's like, ah, yes, werewolf, exactly as I planned. The other wild thing about Dr. Brandon is like after a bunch of fucking people have been murdered and at the end of the movie... Brandon's like, yes, he will come to me. I know he will come to me. I'm the only person he can come to. And then he turns him into a werewolf on purpose. And then he's like surprised when the werewolf attacks him. And it's like, what the fuck did, like, what was your end game here, man? Literally, what was the end game here? Because the only one I can see is the one that happened, which is the wolf killed you. This is why I find the ending the weakest part of the movie, not on paper, but it's like the 85, but it's like the, the 82 K price tag and the seven day shooting schedule finally caught up to them. Yeah. Because the actual, like when I say the ending is lets me down, it's on like a cinematic level. Sure. Like we're just sort of looking down the aisle of Dr. Brandon's laboratory and like Tony attacks him and takes tackles him to the ground. And then we sort of hear off camera Brandon die. We don't get any close ups. We don't get like anything really to emphasize that moment, even though Brandon's like the true villain of the movie. And then Tony gets up and he opens the door or whatever. And the cops shoot him. And we're seeing all of that from behind Tony. We never see Tony's face as he's being shot. That whole moment doesn't really get any emphasis. And then the cops come in and just have this like very weak dialogue where it's like, I mean, we absolutely had to. We're, we're totally justified in having killed this kid. 
And after all, there are things that man was not meant to know. The end. And after this movie that was doing a lot of effort to show the true emotional toll on the community, it's like they went out of their way at the end to be like, oh shit, we don't want to show the emotional toll of like the cops had to shoot this kid at the end. So I guess we're done. And and that was what was disappointing. We we opened a can of worms that we weren't prepared to deal with. (laughs) Exactly. So it leaves a lot of like arcs feeling unfinished. It's like, what about Arlene and the dad and the, yeah. So, yeah. So where do we want to rank this boy? Uh, well, I have a single spot. So do I. <laughs> Jesus, why do you say it like that? Um, For the drama. <laughs> when I was looking at ranking, uh-huh. I went to the werewolf at number 44. Totally reasonable. Um, and because I was really impressed with that werewolf movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the first werewolf movie that was trying to do its own thing, did not feel hampered by Universal, and it was really good. And I felt that uh, I was a teenage werewolf did better. Yes. Because it was like, you know, the werewolf had stuff with like, oh, the community, oh, the his family. But it was so focused on like so many different characters. Whereas yeah. I was a teen werewolf is just focused on Tony with a little bit of other people's here and there. So I felt that made it stronger. Yeah. It's one community in this movie. Whereas like in the werewolf, he's like from somewhere else and is an outsider yeah so then i looked above which is the vampire last episode Mm -hmm. and i was like "Ooh, but that movie is really strong and really well held together uh to the point where i'm like i feel like i would put i was a teenage werewolf at 44 where the werewolf is and just push that down so i just went one spot higher Oh, above the vampire under Queen of Spades. So why is this better than the vampire for you? So this movie really impressed me because it felt like like, you know, this is a name brand movie. Like people have heard of this one, (laughs) but like it felt like this justified a lot of like obscure movies that no one's ever heard of that we've watched to get to this point because it was like, oh, this has made all the Bridie Murphy nonsense worth it because now i have the context understand why the fuck anyone would think that like brandon's scheme makes any kind of sense um and like it it's like all of the stuff with the science monsters we've been seeing where it's like it's the universal monsters but we made them with science uh and we've been seeing like all this regression stuff and we've been seeing all this hypnosis stuff it felt like the perfect like apotheosis of all that stuff where it's like ah all of that's come together finally into a good movie and as much as like the vampire we really liked because of how it held together, it also kind of didn't because like this movie, the mechanics of the monster didn't make sense. And while the vampire creates a lot of really interesting characters, I was a teenage werewolf creates a lot of believable characters. And finally, for me, the big thing that pushed me over was just that the regression stuff makes more sense to me here. As much as like, why does he turn into a werewolf is a big question. I can, un, I can read between the lines and get to that point of like, oh, he's regressing to an animalistic state. I think these two movies are really comparable, honestly, because they are both strong and weak in similar points. Yeah. Because as much as I agree with what you're saying about the vampire, it was about something. 
Mm. And it was strongly about something. True. It was strongly about addiction. It hit its mark multiple times. Actually, that's funny because its alternative title is The Mark of the Vampire. Um, (laughs) And I think that makes it like, you know, when we're comparing apples to apples, I think that that makes the vampire a step above because I was a teenage werewolf. Isn't really about anything except teens. I mean, I think I was a teenage werewolf is is sort of thinking it's about something. It's like, ah, this is about like the teen youth problem, right? It just doesn't have an answer to that question, which means that like it doesn't know how to narrow in on on what it should be about, right? So I do agree with you there. I want to say Michael Landon gives a better performance, but honestly, uh, John Beale in The Vampire gives like a really good performance. I like the makeup here more, but the makeup in The Vampire is thematically like on point. Oh, that's it's really tough. I they both do a cat people stalking sequence, basically one in one that's more cat people because it's on a sidewalk and one that's in the woods. But I think The Vampires is much better achieved it didn't have that like start stop fully effect it really culminates into an actual chase and then even though uh what's their face is saved a person still does get killed um can you remind me what the ending of the vampire is because the ending is the only part of this movie that i thought fell a little weak um so nurse goes to doc and is like, don't kill yourself. And like, raise voices that anger turns him. She's screaming, goes on the run. Cops are also like Buck, the cop is ah. chasing after him. So it's a uh, cop chasing, vampire chasing nurse through the woods, shoot vampire. He reverts back the end. Right. So a very similar ending, and I had a similar problem with it of, like, I wanted more denouement than we got. You were um, happy with the amount of denouement we got. You wanted enough that someone I wanted would more, explain something? Yes, I wanted but, a science explanation. But you were, like, I remember when we watched it, you were, like, and that's how you do it. Monsters <laughs> killed, throw up the end. Right. Um, yeah, I wanted a, a science explanation. I do think that... God, they are really similar movies. Yeah. It's really hard because you're right about them being strong and weak in kind of the same ways. I think the thing that I that makes me like I was a teenage werewolf more is because the of the teen thing. Is just because like realizing that teens should be the protagonists of these movies is such a like brilliant, like why did no one think of this before kind of thing. Where it's like, yes, your audience is teens, your characters should be teens. I think that's a a really good point, because the vampire is doing a lot of existing things really well, and using them to say something. But it's not, at no point did it feel like it was pushing something forward. No. It was just having a lot of fun in its existing playground. Yes. So, okay, I think with that kind of explanation, I would be cool with teen werewolf going above the vampire yeah and i mean this is still real close to where you had it pegged right we're basically saying that this and the vampire are like about the same level of quality yeah which i would agree so (laughs) there we go yeah absolutely so entering the list at the new number 43 is i was a teenage werewolf from 1957 directed by gene fowler jr 
If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. We have received an appeal uh, that we'll be addressing in the coming week, so stay tuned for that. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can listen to the show however you like if you subscribe to our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review or telling a friend about it. If you have the financial means, we also would really appreciate it if you could give uh, the show some monetary support over on patreon.com slash podcast. You can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Supporters at the $5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus content. $5 supporters are getting weekly bonus audio cut from previous episodes, and $10 supporters are getting monthly entries in Sarah's Gothic Retrospective series. As of this past Monday, 20 minutes of cut content from our episode on Gojira just went up for $5 plus patrons. So, Holy smokes. Yeah, if you think the proper episode was long, yeah. uh, stay tuned for bonus content. <laughs> yeah, wow. So if you want to hear that, what's the address do they need to go to, Ben? Patreon.com slash Scream Scene Podcast. Smooth as butter. What are we watching next week? Next week, Sarah, we're watching a movie that I know almost nothing about. The title is The Unearthly. It stars John Carradine and Tor Johnson. And that's about all I got for you. Great. Sounds like a real winner. See you next time, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.